You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, so yeah, today we're pleased uh, to have uh, Suzanne uh, Wengler, uh, and she is associate professor at uh, Notre Dame. I think there's a the title, right? Nancy, is it Drew? Yes. Uh, professor of uh, political science, and uh, she works on um, post-Soviet political and economic transformation. Uh, she's going to be uh, sure she received her degree from uh, University of California, Berkeley. So we have some. Uh, you have some uh, many fellow Berkeleyans uh, here, uh, this, uh, and her recent book, uh, her most recent book, um, is out on University of Wisconsin Press. So there's another connection there, uh, and she's going to be talking uh, to us uh, about this book, uh, Black Earth, White Bread: uh, Techno Political History of Russian Agriculture and Food. Uh, so please uh, let's uh, welcome Professor Bengley. Uh, uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Ted. Uh, thank you, everyone, for your time and for your interest. Uh, it's nice to be back uh, and give an in-person talk. It's been sort of a while. Um, so I'm going to talk about Russian agriculture. And I will just want to start by saying that this project started about 10 years ago. And it started a lot essentially as the question, what happened to collective farms uh, in Russia? And it wasn't meant to be a project that went back a uh, hundred years. But pretty quickly, I sort of realized that it, it's, it's really hard to say anything about Russian post-Soviet agriculture without actually going back to Lenin. So l allow me to go back uh, to Lenin. So as you know, Lenin uh, promised bread along with land and peace to gain support for the revolution. And after coming to power, this promise of bread actually created a number of logistical challenges for the government, for the Bolshevik government. Uh, making good on the promise of bread uh, was not trivial. And the government, the Bolshevik government, faced many problems uh, right around that time, right? Uh, but the bread problem, what was known at the bread pro as a bread problem, was actually one of the most urgent and complicated ones. So to quote Bukharin here, the bread question is the most difficult problem of the revolution. And helpfully, he kind of interprets for us here what the bread problem is. There was a lot of political debate about the bread problem and about the peasant problem, which was related. But the bread problem was how to provide the towns with the necessities of lives. Workers are hungry because the exchange of goods between town and country is paralyzed. So this last part is Bukharin's analysis of what exactly is tricky here. And then he also has analysis of what to do about it. I'm going to bracket this part uh, uh, for, for a moment. Uh, uh, but note here that bread and the necessities of life and how to provide urban populations with these goods was considered a, an important political problem. Uh, part of the solution, or one little bit of the solution, was the bread factory. Um, and so the Soviet government more broadly speaking, relies on various technologies to solve the bread problem. Um, and we see this uh, in a quote from Gorky from also the 20s, about the same time, who uh, Gorky at that point, you know, famous poet of the revolution, comes back 
to Russia and is, uh, goes and visits a bread factory. More likely than not, he was sort of ordered to go and visit a bread factory. Um, and he says, nothing speaks more forcefully about the improvements to everyday life under socialism than you know, what is happening at this bread factory. Um, the bread, bread and bread factory continues to be sort of linked to uh, socialism and the improvements of everyday life. And in 1952, Ogonyuk article, I found something quite similar where the author says, those who want to see socialism at work, go visit a bread factory. So this link between a technology, uh, basically a, a way of industrially producing food, and a, a political uh, goal uh, remains intact to this day. Um, President Putin in 2018 also visits a bread factory and sort of carefully inspects the products and the technology and you know, similarly is impressed with the post-Soviet bread factory. So what is going on here, right? This is obviously just a small part of the larger story of agricultural transformation in Russia. Um, but it's a, sort of a small part that I argue is a telling question. Uh, I, I'm using this, uh, this small part to introduce the bigger questions that inform the book, um, which are the following. Um, the broad questions that I'm addressing are what role did food and agriculture play in the larger drama of the political and historic uh, change in 20th and 21st century Russia? And how do we understand radical change that has taken place in agriculture and food systems? Um, so the book makes, tells the story of change in Russian agriculture and makes basically two pretty large big arguments, and I'll talk mostly about the second argument. But the first argument is that food and agriculture were a central aspect of Soviet and Russian politics throughout the 20th century, and remain so to this day. Um, one, of, one of the interesting things that we see on this picture from the 1930s and 2008 is that on the top two pictures, this is, this is harvest time in both, in both scenarios. In the top picture, there's about 38 people involved in, in harvesting. And here there's actually uh, one guy sitting in the tractor, right? So this gives you just a sort of a visual image of, uh, of change, right? Um, so the second question is what has changed? And the second big argument in the book is that technopolitics is a compelling conceptual device to understand change in agri-food systems in Russia and elsewhere. So technopolitics, is a concept that I borrow from Gabrielle Hecht. Um, uh, and I make the case that technopolitics is an interesting uh, way to think about agriculture and food systems. So for agro-technopolitics, uh, technopolitics stands for the support uh, and reliance on agricultural technologies and policy regimes to seek to realize particular political goals. Um, so, what I want to do in the rest of the talk is uh, three things. So the first thing I will do is talk a little bit more about this concept of technopolitics and why it is helpful. Um, then I'm going to talk about one particular technology, uh, which is uh, seed and agricultural, a little bit more broader is agricultural genetics, to illustrate the bigger claims. And then I'll close with some remarks about agrotechnopolitics in the Putin era. So before I go further, I guess, is 
want to say that this is a project about Russian agriculture, right? It's about um, it's about wheat, it's about sugar, sugar beets, um, about potatoes, um, and you know, it's it's about uh, commodities and animals that are uh, raised in Russia uh, and grow on Eurasian soil. Um, technopolitics, however, some but technopolitics, however, is a concept that I am hoping will be useful for other studies of food systems. And in fact, some of the questions that I address have been around for a very long time. So this is actually one of the reasons that has kept me interested in this project. And, and essentially, I sort of figured out that questions about what happened to Russian farms are really questions about rural change that have been with us really since the Industrial Revolution, right? So remarkably, questions that were asked in the 1920s are still relevant today, such as, you know, uh, what's the viability of uh, small farms? What will happen to small farms uh, given technological change and so on? So because these are such big questions and because they actually were politically relevant and really interesting to a lot of people for a very long time, there's a very large body of literature talking about rural change, right? So I'm very briefly and very broadly summarizing sort of two approaches to understanding these questions. Uh, but keep in mind that these are very broad, broad ways of thinking about it. Um, so basically, I think there's space two, two ways of thinking about rural change, uh, ways of thinking about economic actors as, as the driving force uh, versus ways that think about political actors as the driving force. So, um, the economic um, approaches emphasize in dynamics inherent in capitalist or industrial production uh, as, as drivers of change. So the idea is once production shifts from subsistence to market uh, production, um, there are sort of powerful dynamics in the uh, economic process of change that accelerate industrialization and basically lead to changes in scale, which then drive rural change. Um, economic approaches basically sort of come in two varieties. They're the sort of Marxist approaches that emphasize capital accumulation as the motor of change and sort of driving the, the, the impoverishment of smallholders and then the, the enrichment of the, of the capitalist large farms. Uh, versus the liberal theories that tend to sort of have a more positive valence and stress, uh, you know, technological change and innovation as the drivers of change. Now, the strength of the economic approach is precisely sort of this focus on production and the incredibly dynamic uh, processes at work here. However, the elephant in the room, and anyone who studies Russian history is aware of this elephant in the room, is, is the state, right? because here's a picture of collective farm workers. Russian collective farm workers didn't spontaneously collectivize, right? There was a lot of force, there's a lot of violence uh, involved. Uh, and it, this isn't just true for Stalin's collectivization. This, the state was very involved in the industrialization of agriculture virtually everywhere in the world, right? So economic historians of the US emphasize the USDA and the extensions uh, the finance uh, organizations. So there was basically political drivers uh, in, in these rural modernization projects everywhere. 
there's also the statist approaches then that focus very much on governments and agents of the state. Uh, here again, there's lots of different strands of theorizing. There's theorizing about uh, developing countries, there's theorizing about early and late development in Europe and so on. Uh, but in terms of the sort of more recent theory, uh, there's, there's a focus on governments seeking re-election or seeking legitimacy in non-democratic contexts that tend to side with urban consumers and uh, enact policies that affect commodity prices, which in turn um, uh, drive changes. So while these political and statist approaches are interesting because they show how markets are created, um, they often sort of neglect that food and agriculture are actually commodities that have to be grown in real soil in difficult climates, right? And that uh, farmers and workers have to be on board with the state's plan, right? And sometimes they're on board and sometimes they're not. And sometimes climates are conducive and sometimes uh, they're not. So agriculture is a very risky business and growing lots of food at low prices for rapidly urbanizing populations is actually pretty challenging. Um, so political actors uh, could not ever sort of decree that what they wanted to achieve uh, should happen. They didn't, could, in other words, they could not solve the bread problem on their own, right? So they could not solve the bread problem as sort of a merely bureaucratic matter. Uh, they relied on farmers, they relied on producers of various kinds. So here's a picture of Nikut, uh, Khrushchev, 1964, just a few months before he was removed from the chairmanship. And he sort of, uh, it's sort of really like this picture because he looks very pensive here, right? <laughs> Things went not as he had planned, right? He had, was the most powerful man in the Soviet Union, but things just did not go as planned, right? So the, the technopolitics then is a concept that keeps the powerful agency of the state in focus, while also holding in view how and by whom food uh, was actually produced. And this together, technopolitics, is then a lens that reveals the relationship between agents of the state and the farmers, the effects of these relationships on particular um, consumer-producer alliances, the effects of this relationship for consumers and for the state's political ambitions, and finally on the natural environment. So technopolitics is therefore sort of a lens that lets us see many more things about rural change. Um, so I will turn to Russia now, but I will come back to these uh, things uh, in, in the Russian example. So technology was considered a key motor of social, political, and economic change in the Soviet Union in general. Uh, science was fundamental to the Soviet era modernization project as a whole. Uh, this is true for industrial production. And it's, it's better known for industrial production, but it was no different for agricultures. Uh, the, the, the fields of agronomy and agricultural uh, genetics and agricultural studies had made tremendous progress in the late 19th century. And uh, in late imperial Russia, there was sort of a revival or a, a growth of interest uh, in science and technology for 
world progress. And so many early Bolshevik officials uh, wanted to use science and technology as the main path and the main tool to solve the bread problem, right? Peasants just had to be educated, right? Production methods just had to change. New commodities uh, had to be planted. New seeds, new animals, new tools had to be brought to the countryside. Um, so this was one approach to uh, solving the broad problem. Uh, the faction of the government, uh, of the Bolshevik government who emphasized that approach was in a struggle with others who, had uh, who wanted a more violent approach to the insufficient grain problem, right? And sadly, as you know, this sort of more violent approach won out under, stand, uh, under Stalin, which led to collectivization. But for the whole entire, for the whole Soviet period, science and technology uh, as a means of progress remained the important. This is a poster from the 1970s that shows sort of this idealized alliance between the farmer and the scientists, uh, between the collective farm and uh, the, the biologists, the plant and animal breeders, the agrotechnical engineers, and the others, uh, to, who together, sort of in this idealized way, would care about every field. So I want to look at agrogenetics as a more concrete example, as a, as a, as a sort of a, a, a case study of a technology of how this um, uh, link between a political project, a technology, and uh, outcomes in the countryside worked out. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, I, before I do that, I should have introduced a sort of this large uh, picture of change in Russia's food system. Um, Stalin, uh, Lenin uh, nationalized land, Stalin collectivized land, uh, Khrushchev expanded uh, the area under cultivation, Brezhnev poured increasing amount of resources into agricultural inputs. Gorbachev tried to decentralize, Yeltsin privatized, and Putin has handed land to private agri-food uh, corporations. So these are all very large, top-down project of agricultural and change, but each of them had very fundamental effects, not only in the countryside, but in cities as well. So the uh, argument here is that technology was a very big, was a very important part of this transformation. And seeds are a, a, a particular type of political technology. So we see this in the 1920s when agricultural geneticists wanted to use improved seeds to modernize agriculture. Uh, there's two excellent studies on that. Um, we see that still today when the Russian government uh, has been supporting what um, is called the CRISPR-Cas9 bonanza. <laughs> For those of you who are not familiar with CRISPR-Cas9, it's a new uh, form of genetic modification. Uh, because it's seen as a way to achieve food security for Russia in the 21st century. Um, so the conventional wisdom about Soviet-era seed breeding is that um, the rise of Trofim Lysenko led to a, 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 a stagnation or even a, a, a tragic interruption of genetic research uh, in Russia. 
so the idea, you know, the, the conventional story on Lysenko is that misguided theories prevailed because they were politically experienced. So Lauren Graham, for example, um, casts Soviet agrogenetics in this light. This is, of course, true. It was, of course, not wrong that Lysenko is in, was in many respects um, uh, flawed and politically favored. Um, Stalin liked the promise of quick results that Lysenko promised. Um, the sort of red, the red plenty was possible uh, despite harsh winters was the promise of Lysenkoism. Um, recently, however, historians have po said, pointed out that it was actually wrong that Soviet era agricultural genetics was sort of irrevocably stunted and never recovered. Several uh, agricultural historians have sort of shown that agricultural genetics continued, uh, actually agricultural plant breeding and animal breeding continued despite the sort of flawed theories of Lysenkoism. So Jenny Smith makes uh, this case for pig breeding in a recent book called Works in Progress. So Smith looked at pig breeding um, and I was, for reasons related to bread, really interested in wheat breeding. Um, so I looked closer at agricultural genetics and wheat breeding and found that um, Soviet agriculture actually benefited from a quite strong and vibrant plant breeding infrastructure despite the disruptions of late cyclism. So what's really interesting about um, plant breeding in the Soviet Union is that this early Soviet government already inherited quite strong institutions, scientific institutions, and then built and extended a, a, a very uh, dense network of experimental stations and plant breeding institutions. Um, these plant breeding institutions combined uh, breeding aims of high yield, so economic goals, with plant breeding aims that favored locally adapted varieties. So this is interesting because it helped Soviet plant, uh, uh, Soviet agriculture uh, use different varieties across the very large and geographically and climatically diverse territory. Um, finally, there was actually quite uh, a quite significant degree of competition between plant, plant breeding institutes, and this wasn't sort of a market competition, but this was competition that was very actively uh, promoted and celebrated in uh, uh, exhibitions, scientific meetings, and these different plant breeding institutes write their history as being competitive, as wanting to achieve uh, uh, higher reputation and wanting their varieties to be used across a larger area in the Soviet Union. Um, finally, um, so, so the Soviet era plant breeding world, so the larger uh, number of institutes and experimental stations was actually quite uh, vibrant. Many new varieties uh, for all kinds of agricultural crops were developed and were used with Soviet, uh, in Soviet collective farms across the Soviet Union. There's, there's more interesting things here, but I'll, I'll, I'll move on. The post-Soviet plant breeding um, establishment then actually was also stronger than many would expect, right? Uh, they're stronger against the odds. So on the one hand, they could build uh, on the inherited institutions of the Soviet era plant breeding institutes. Um, however, the odds were quite, uh, the challenges were, were quite significant 
because in the 90s, uh, like many other areas of Soviet um, research, the, the budget funds basically disappeared. So these uh, plant breeding institutes had to transition from a funding model of budgetary funds to basically selling seeds to commercial agricultural producers. Uh, agricultural was at that time in free fall, so this was no small feat. However, it looks uh, like all the Soviet era and even all the imperial era plant breeding institutes are still operational today, and many of them sell a variety of seeds. A second challenge is that Russia has imposed a GMO ban, right? So many plant, many agricultural commodities across the world um, uh, rely on um, genetically modified seeds that are produced by a number, a very small number of global seed giants, right? Monsanto, Syngenta, Bayer. Russia has a, a GMO ban in place, and uh, so the Russian seed producers had to have to navigate this domestic environment and the global competition of, of seed giants. Nevertheless, they seem to uh, prevail. And in part, this is because they have started focusing on these CRISPR technologies and have res uh, received quite significant state support to uh, develop seed varieties uh, based on this CRISPR technology. So this is the uh, Vovilov Plant Breeding Institute in Petersburg. It's in a, you know, beautiful, enormous imperial, it actually occupies a whole block, uh, imperial uh, building in Petersburg. And I'll just, I've never put a picture of myself in one of my presentations. I'm doing it here because this was my last field work trip. And, you know, Vavilov was sort of this hero of this institute. So um, there it is. Um, let me, um, let me see if I have any concluding thoughts that I skipped over. So this is a story about a particular technology, agricultural seeds, uh, a, a serving a political project, uh, the sort of Soviet version of uh, abundance, um, and then the state support that actually allows the, the sector to thrive both in the Soviet era and the post-Soviet era under quite difficult circumstances. So let me get to, so that's the political side of the story. Let me get to the, uh, that was the technological side of the story. Let me get to the political side of the story. Uh, and here I'm focusing on the Putin era, although I would like to, I'd love to tell you more about Khrushchev and seeds, but I'll talk about Putin and seeds. Um, so let me backtrack just a little bit to talk about Russian agricultural policy under Putin. The, 90s were uh, a very difficult period for Soviet farms. Uh, Yeltsin had privatized farms, uh, but there was basically no capital available for any farms to actually operate farms, right? So Jessica Pisano wrote a book on the privatization and she put it in really nice terms. She said, uh, it takes money to uh, farm and there was basically no money in the Russian countryside. Uh, at the same time, trade liberalization uh, led to increasingly uh, increasing amounts of uh, imported food commodities in Russia. Uh, the sort of situation of, of, of collapse uh, started to gradually change after 98 uh, when the ruble devaluation made it more expensive to import. Um, and so uh, 
a number of Russian agricultural uh, producers started producing to, uh, domestically. This led to uh, the emergence of agroholdings. Um, agroholdings are very interesting new economic actors. And I should talk a lot. I've, ha I've had uh, articles and, and talks all about the agroholdings, but I want to keep it short here. Um, many of these agroholdings were initially funded through Russian domestic oligarchic capital, uh, but some others were also funded by foreign investors, um, and uh, such as sovereign wealth funds and Western pension funds. Um, they are vertically integrated companies. They produce everything from seeds, they own very large uh, land banks, to grains, to meats, to finished processed go goods. Um, and um, they invested quite uh, significant capital in Russian agriculture. So the story here, and, and just in a nutshell, is that the Russian countryside was basically starved for capital, right? There was this sort of ailing old tractors from much of the 90s. In the early 2000s, uh, there's money flowing into the Russian countryside, and the money basically goes into land acquisitions for these agri-holdings. They are now the largest land owners in Russia, and they own the most fertile land, uh, and also in technological upgrades, right? They, these agri-holdings invest in all kinds of technologies. And, you know, this, this is just the statistics, but my attention was drawn to the statistics through interviews with agri-holdings where, where, where the sort of agri-holding representatives really, really just wanted to talk about the technology, right? We bought this factory with this new technology where we imported these new milking parlors from Germany, these tractors from the US. So the rise of the agri-holdings and this kind of capital accumulation really would not have been pos possible without a very active uh, and, and generous support by the Putin government. Uh, I now have a project uh, that compares Russia with other post-Soviet countries. And in other post-Soviet countries, a, a lot of my interview respondents always compare their hardship and un, uh, you know, unsympathetic governments with Russia, which is so supportive and, and, and uh, generous, right? So the Russian government supported agricultural producers uh, uh, and agri-holdings with uh, credit subsidies, uh, uh, various trade, restrictions most recently, uh, the sanctions, um, just simple area payments um, as well, uh, and tax breaks. All of this is known in Russia as the food security agenda. And the food security agenda served two really important goals. One goal was domestic and the other one was international. So the domestic goals were basically to provide uh, affordable goods to all Russians, right? Initially, the state wanted to make sure that pensioners had something to eat, uh, but increasingly the food agenda was about providing sort of more, uh, more uh, uh, attractive goods to sort of middle class families, right? Uh, the international dimension of the food security was to reduce dependence on uh, foreign imports, and international uh, dimension has become more important over time. You know, in some interesting uh, instances we see the domestic and the international agenda being played off against each other. Um, so here is where 
the political story and the technology story come together, right? The Russian government under Putin was not able to fulfill, was not able to realize these goals without their, its reliance on agro-holdings, right? So we see all these state uh, supports flowing to agro-holdings um, in general, and then for the seed, uh, for the seed story, we also have the plant breeding institutes that receive more funding uh, compared to the 90s, and then favorable treat, uh, treatment of foreign uh, seed giants, right? This is uh, a new seed care institute um, uh, funded by Syngenta, but supported by the uh, Russian government, and I, I forget now where it is. I think it's in Sarajev. Um, so to come back to the three points I made about technopolitics, right? Technopolitics helps us understand the state producer alliances uh, in general and uh, for particular subsectors. Um, it also helps us understand the effects or outcomes of these kinds of partnerships. And there's many different levels here, right? At the broadest level, capital investments in agro-holdings increased wheat, or increased crop yields in wheat and increased, uh, in, in particularly significant ways, it increased production and exports, right? Uh, for, uh, if we dig a little deeper, we also see that state support for particularly Russian commodities led to um, a high degree of Russian sourced inputs, right? So this is a table of patent holders for seed varieties used in Russian agriculture. So what this basically shows us is that Russian uh, wheat seeds are Russian and then corn seeds are foreign, right? This particular category, the fact that sugar beets are largely foreign uh, has actually led to a sort of a political uproar. <laughs> and um, a 2017 uh, state program that supports CRISPR-Cas technology development focuses on Russian crops, namely four Russian crops, barley, sugar beet, wheat, and potato. So technopolitics helps us understand uh, the why wheat is strong because wheat has benefited from the decades of Soviet and post-Soviet seed breeding institutes that have been supported by the state. Um, yet another level of the outcome of technopolitical alliances we see in everyday life, right? So the Soviet era focus on improved wheat seeds led to the replacement of dark bread with wheat bread, lighter bread, and this is actually where the title of the book comes from, right? That's the white bread. Um, uh, sorry, that should be a comma that appears, uh, which actually has uh, less um, protein content than the rye bread. Um, so I'm mentioning this because technopolitical projects sometimes have intended outcomes, but also unintended outcomes. It's sort of still uh, too early to tell what the post-Soviet uh, focus and political support for the CRISPR-Cas9 technologies will be. Um, I copied this from a sort of an industry association that is very excited about these technologies that say 
we will have improved food safety, we will have increasing shelf life, uh, new products, better things, right? Um, but um, the, the Russian history of uh, agricultural change has sort of shown us that there's, there's many changes on the farm, but there's actually uh, a, a, another way of, uh, of thinking about changes is to think about changing vulnerabilities. Um, so I'm drawing on uh, other work here that has thought about technopolitics as a way to think about uh, risks, difficulties, and vulnerabilities uh, as consequences of the implementation of particular technological uh, blueprints in real world environments, right? So Soviet history is actually sort of replete with these kind of practical uh, difficulties and vulnerabilities. Um, in the post-Soviet period, um, you know, we can then ask sort of what the vulnerabilities of Russia's contemporary techno-political regime in agriculture is, and there's many different answers to this, right? The agri-holdings are really concerned with economic vulnerability, right? They source inputs from abroad and the rubles uh, valuation depends on oil but affects the cost of inputs. Scientists tend to be more uh, interested in climate vulnerabilities and their vulnerability to evolving pests due to, cli to uh, climate change. So the, the, the scientists I talked to at the Vavilov Institute were developing new varieties to you know, grow more wheat and higher with higher yields but they were also very aware that new varieties had uh, to sort of, in the future, deal with drought and new pests, and, and they were sort of actively working in this direction. The Russian government, meanwhile, is mostly interested in geopolitical vulnerability because sourcing seeds from abroad is an unreliable um, uh, uh, path for them for ge geopolitical reasons. So. I'm mentioning all of this because technopolitics helps us uh, bring these things to the discussion of the politics of agriculture. And it helps us understand how agri-food systems change. So I will conclude here by just repeating the things that I've said in the context of Russia in a more general sense. Technopolitics change, drives change in food systems because it empowers and supports one group of actors. Uh, this has intended and unintended effects and transforms uh, transform the food systems. And these effects, in turn, are addressed with new political initiatives and technological innovations that generate new producer alliances. Thank you.